0: Hey, everybody. Welcome back to On Stage, Off Stage. I'm your host, George Sapio, and this is episode number 138, February of 2021. Our guest this month is Michael J. Bobbitt, the artistic director of New Repertory Theater in Boston, Massachusetts. Michael is also an arts leader, a director, a choreographer, a playwright, and an anti-racist arts advocate. In the past few months, Michael has had two articles featured in American Theater Magazine. The first was Let's Be Real, These Programs Won't End Racism at Your Theater. That was from December 2020, followed in January with, Boards Are Broken, So Let's Break and Remake Them. Both of these articles are important reading, and I encourage all and sundry to visit them. Michael was gracious enough to take time from his busy schedule to talk about these articles. The Problems of White-Centered Theater in the United States, The Hope and Excitement of Theater for Young Audiences, and his highly impressive work as a theater professional. I figured I'd start with a subject that, as I said before, is near and not very dear to my heart, which is boards. Um, From my own limited experience of boards, I have to report that as an artistic director of a fringe festival, having to deal with a board is sometimes way more work than it's worth. I mean, I love being in charge, and I know what I need, and I know I need help to make some of these things happen. And that's where the boards come in. And when they work, they're absolutely great. But on one hand, they're capable of a dysfunctionality that can be soul-crushing. And the question always arises, and you discussed this at length, which I'd love to get into. How can I make sure that my board represents my audience, both existing and potential? I mean, for any community, I consider the entire community my potential audience. Um I mean, it's my job as an artistic director to engage my uh, whole community. So as you write in your article, I, too, am an expert imaginator. How can I create a board that is not only highly effective, but in tune with all of my community?
1: It's a, a big question to, to answer. And I'll first say that I, I, I think that um, the question of boards goes back to um, how the nonprofit industry is structured, and I'm not even sure it was really structured well from the beginning, and I, I often have to, to ask myself if the IRS was really the agency that should have been tasked to, to manage this program. I think, you know, when this was created back in 68, I think it is, uh, I, they were slammed. The IRS is slammed every year. So um, so I think, and, and, and maybe because they were slammed, they, they didn't put together enough Regulations about it, but but because of the 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 dysfunction of the just the charter of being an IRS, I think uh, a nonprofit organization. I think that b- boards have in many ways taken over, and you know, I, I said in my in my article that it seems strange to me that the whole regional theater industry. The oversight of the whole regional theater industry is 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 from people that don't aren't experts in the business, um, and I and I wonder how much of our dysfunction and our problems that we have can can be linked back to boards. I do think that when boards work well, they really work well, and some of that has to do with the culture and the leader, um, and. Uh, but, but then, then to your question about how do you build a board that represents the community you want to serve and also um, uh, uh, functions in a, way, in a great way, I'll address the first part first. Th- to represent the community that you want to serve, you have to really identify what, what the community you want. You know, who do you want to be, um, you know, if you're, if you're a theater company, what do, you, what do you want your patrons to look like? What do you want your donors to look like? Um, and then you have to sort of write that down and, and and make sure it's something you that you have sold and and gotten your whole team to enroll on, and then you have to structure your your organization to help you get there. Uh, I I often think that we spend a lot of time building nonprofit. Um, uh, you know, a nonprofit spend a lot of time doing strategic planning, and we build these beautiful strategic plans, and we spend a whole year and do all this work. And then we don't restructure to help us get to our strategic goals. And when I say restructure, looking at the vision you have identified in your plan— how are you going to build the people that are helping you get to the vision? How are you going to build that structure? And that means that the board has to change, the staff has to change, um, how what staff is doing may have to change. Um, and so, if in your strategic plan you have identified that you want a diverse, uh, you want to be serving a diverse population, then your board needs to help you get there, and that means you have to diversify the board. Um, and there are many ways of doing it. Uh, it's it's always shocking to me when organizations that are especially in major metropolitan areas say they they can't they can't find diverse board members. That's to me a lack of imagination, laziness, or maybe some. Unknown or undercurrent of wanting to maintain whiteness. Yeah.
0: Um So because I, mean, I I think uh, being unable to diversify a board in a major area, that's the worst excuse I've ever
1: heard. Absolutely. You know I've encouraged I've encouraged new reps board to add a question when they're if 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 we get right now we have defined we have decided that we're only um, electing people of color on the board because that's where we have a gap. But if we get to a place where we start interviewing and electing um, uh, white people on the board, I think one of the questions should be asked: Is tell me about the significant relationships you have with people co- people of color in your life, or open up your phone your 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 photo app on your phone and tell me who's in those photos? Yeah. Um, it's a strange thing in America. It's a very really strange thing in America that that white people can be born, raised, educated married die without ever having without ever without without having meaningful relationships with with people of color and they still can succeed and many times they don't feel like their life is 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 there's a loss in their life people of color in this country you cannot have success without having a meaningful relationship with white people
0: right yeah I mean, we're we're so good at segregating and it's it's such a one-sided uh uh issue. You know, as you said, white people can go through, you know, most of their lives without having to meaning meaningfully integrate or act with black people, Asian people. Um but it's not the other way around. It's we pretty much run the structure.
1: hmm Yep. <laughs> yep. And that and that and the other part about that is that because White people made the rules. They're the only people that have the social power and the legal authority to change the rules. People of color can't fix racism. We can yell and scream and protest and and call you out and call you in and and try to educate you, but we do not have the social power or the legal authority to change it. We have power and we have a voice, but we don't have social power and legal authority. That's, That's white people. And uh, white people have to be willing to give up power and privilege, and um, to, to, for the for the greater good. That's the only way racism will end.
0: Well, you talk about changing the culture, and those are three of the most laden words I've read about in in the past several months. Changing the culture, it's changing the basic identity of. A society that's been around for a couple of hundred years, you know, 400 years, all right? And changing the way we think, changing the way we observe the world around us, changing our very natures, that's a humongous job.
1: It is a humongous job. And I think we have to have hope that we can change the culture. The moment we stop having hope, we have sealed the deal, and the world is moving much faster. Than it used to. So even though it's a 400-year history of this, I do think that that we can we can fix the cultural issues quickly if we decide to fix it. Um, And changing the culture, you know, I think the hard thing about changing the culture is that if you've been on this planet for 10 to 80 years, you have been, for lack of a better word, brainwashed into believing that the way the world that you exist in is the right way. Right. And I and I still think that, you know, when I think about um, whose view of the world is the most most truthful, is it the privileged or is it the oppressed? And I think it's the oppressed. And if the privileged can listen to the oppressed and help to make oppression go away, then we can change the culture. When you say truthful,
0: do you mean... People who see the world more for what it is. Yes. Yeah. Okay.
1: When I think about it, whose world is more true? What? What's, what's, what? 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 Actual idea of the world? Or the, or the? Let me stop. What? What is the most true version of the world? Yeah. The vision of the world from those who have privilege, or the vision of the world from those who have who are oppressed. And I think it's from those who are oppressed. I'm, I'm Those, going are, to be, those who have privilege can can see what they want to see because they have that luxury. Exactly.
0: They don't have to step outside of their gated community and view the world. They can just you know check it out through Facebook or whatever's on Netflix at the particular time. But they have created their own little microcosm within the actual world. They are not the world. They are a part of a sealed yep. off part of. Yep. All right. Agreed. And yeah. And you can argue about the definition, the nature, and the meaning of truth. And truths are different for everybody. Your truth is vastly different than mine. Correct. And, 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 and I, we, we we operate in, and integrate with the worlds
1: in completely different ways. Yeah. And, and And I think the hard thing is like, what's hard is that I don't know if, I don't know if fixing the problem can be at the whim of those who have privilege, because that's where I think this anger comes from. Like I have worked hard, I have built all this stuff, I have generations of wealth that I have accumulated, and now you're asking me to give up some of that for people that I don't really know. Um, so if it's at their whim, then I don't know if they 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 um, will do it if they have to do it because it's now law and required, or, or you'll be publicly shamed for not giving, giving it up. Mm. And I think that's where anger comes from, because now, now you're taking it from me. But the truth mm. is that that's, that's what it's, it's gonna take to, 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 to get to a world where there is no oppression. I really believe that when oppression exists, no one is free, because we have to have these kinds of conversations, George. Yes, we do. When oppression exists, we, we have to have all these articles and see about it on the news. And so no one is really free. And those who, who are oppressing need to stop oppressing. <laughs>
0: yeah. Well, so. we need to keep having these conversations because the problem hasn't gone away. Yes. And if once you stop addressing something, people forget about it. So
1: yeah. this is an,
0: this is an ongoing conversation that needs to be repeated and repeated until progress is made and things change. I mean, I am an avid history buff, and through most of what I've read, change only seems to come once there is no other choice. People make excuses, people uh, find ways to maintain the status quo at any particular cost. All right, and like I said, the you know, French Revolution, American Revolution, uh, civil rights movement in, in the United States. People have to be pushed to a point where they have to make a choice, where they have to adjust, because there is no longer any other possibility.
1: Right. And I, and I, and I think the reason why—and I don't think it's the, it's the actual notion of change. I don't think that's what causes people to delay change. I think it's the possibility of loss or the act or the actuality of loss both the possibility and the actuality it's not the change people change every day change happens every day you know um, and people people don't react to it it is loss where people get emotion about either yeah. the actual loss or the perception of loss i mean all of what happened last week at the capitol building was all about the perception of loss yeah not about change
0: well, they felt like they were protecting... Uh, something. Something.
1: Their, and their so... Way,
0: their mentality, their way of life, their, their, their... I don't know. Ask 12 people, they're going to give you 12 similar answers, but they're going to be different somehow. But you are right.
1: Right. Protecting something. And so the perception that this new administration is going to take that something away from them... Right. Pushes them well, towards violence because their 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 fear of losing power and privilege is so visceral yeah. that they're willing to kill. It's 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 really I think in many ways it's a perhaps an undiagnosed mass um, uh, pathology that needs well, to be addressed.
0: We're fed all these. Lies, untruths, we're we're fed all this paranoia day after day after day. The United States is, it's one of its major illnesses is the fact that we are fed fear over and over and over through the media. You know, Obama's going to take your guns. Uh, really, is there evidence for this? Because I don't see him taking, you know, I didn't see him take guns from pretty much anybody, <laughs> but that's what people were afraid of. Okay, right. and well, if it, it, people take your guns, yeah. you won't be able to defend yourself, and then the question remains: against who?
1: Right, and then and it's not new, George. I mean, we have no, been of course not. The history of this whole country is all is all based on on lies, and you know, even like the the colonization of this country. It was we were we we were told that that white people came to civilize. To civilize um, the indigenous people, and that's not true. Those indigenous people were well civilized. They mm-hmm. Yes, they had were. A, had a beautiful society, free of disease, and, and all of a sudden, white people came over and and just messed it all up for their yeah. own for their own. Um, you know, selfish reasons. So, um, so it's not, none of it's new, none of it's new. And I, no. and I, I think about like when I was in school and all of what I learned and, 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 you know, I learned about black history, but it was from a white perspective. So I was taught that Jackie Robinson was exceptional at ball play, baseball player. He was the only one that was good enough to play with the white people. And we know that's not true. When we look at the stats of many other Negro ball players, they were far better than Jackie Robinson. The truth, the truth is, Jackie Robinson was the first black person allowed by white people to play in the major leagues. And that has a whole different understanding, a whole different um, uh, story behind it. Uh, it has nothing to do with him being exceptional. It has everything to do with the power that white men had. Even women's right to vote was not decided by women. It was decided by white men decided by the power structure of course exactly yeah structure I, but the power structure that they gave themselves
0: yes absolutely one one of the wake-up moments that I've had and not I've had not nearly enough um, was reading a textbook when I was substitute teaching American history and the textbook was talking about uh, the Native Americans in Florida who If I can remember this correctly, quote, agreed to move to the Midwest to give the new settlers room to grow their own communities. And that was a one paragraph summation on the Trail of Tears, which nobody in my class and several of my fellow teachers had never heard of. And... I was absolutely yeah. aghast, absolutely just unbelievably stunned at the egregiousness
1: of yeah. that. Yeah. Yeah. And it, it, well, it, it's, it's, the, and I wonder if, you're, if, you're, if your shock is that it, it, the actual lie in the book or the realization that white people wrote it that way. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? Like, we know oh, yeah. in this country. We know in this country, it's like ninety-three percent of all teachers in this country are white women who were taught by white women who were taught by white women who were taught by white women, by white women teaching texts written by white men. Yeah. So of course, everything that we have learned in a, everything that we have learned in a school system is based on white perception, and that's when like when people talk about when people think of the negative the negative connotation of white supremacy as opposed to the actual connotation, which is that. White is the best. You can't deny white supremacy when you look at the, edu- the school, the educational system. It is based mm-hmm. on it is based on positioning white as the best. Yes.
0: Yeah, it's it's the ruling class at this particular point. I want to get back to something you said, and I want to get back to uh, achieving. I hope this is a good word: parity, or equality, equity uh, in theater. Because as it is right now, still white people run the uh, white pe- white people run the show. You wrote nothing in the American theater industry practices to this point should be considered sacred beyond question or unchangeable. And I like that phrase. I'm cheering that phrase on because I think change is a wonderful is a wonderful thing. It's chaotic. It's it's scary as all hell. You never know what's going to happen, um, but it's also inevitable. And I'd rather face it and embrace it than hide in my, you know, in, in my little hole trying to maintain what I've got. So as far as theater goes in the United States, in the country, what icons, what, what sacred cows need to
1: change? I, well, in many ways, I think everything. Another way to interpret that line is everything in the American theater needs to change because it's broken and based on white supremacy. Yeah. <laughs> That's another way to interpret the line. I mean, I um, I was just speaking last week to uh, a group of people um, that are part of I think it's the Shakespeare Theater Association. I'm not exactly sure, but the first thing I one of the things I said to them was, we need to let Shakespeare go, let him go to rest. He takes up mm-hmm. way too way too much space in the American theater. Um, Cannon, he is he is ruling what's happening on stage because because he still is the most produced playwright in this country. He is he is he is determining how we teach our kids about acting, um, and, and he is still influencing most of a lot of Hollywood as well. Yeah. That is, and 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 white people decided that he was the best. It totally. Um, uh, um, neglects the Asian theater and Latin and the viscera of Latinx theater and the, and the right. beauty, beauty of Southeastern Asia. I mean, it is just so very interesting that um, that is the pinnacle of what we think is great. Um, I, I don't, I don't believe that much that every, that will, I don't, I don't know what sacred cows there are that need to be maintained and through in a, in a, in less than a year, less than a year, everything that we thought was right has been it's', it's been destroyed by by these two pandemics yeah um, that is not yeah. a sustainable it's not a sustainable model a model that that is based on the patronage of one race of people is not sustainable um, so everything has to change we have to def- redefine American theater a America, theater that looks like America, right. I told I told my board in the beginning of the process that we are a predominantly white theater for one reason, because of racism, and that the brown and black people that I know love theater, they just don't love our theater <laughs> because it, because it's not yeah. for them. It's not for right. them. Yeah, and just hiring a black guy to run it is not going to all of a sudden make it for them when there are all these other systems and processes in place that 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 disregard them. That's why we have to go back and look at everything that we've yeah. done from an equity and anti-racist point of view.
0: A couple of my previous guests, a couple of months ago, Kelvin Dickens Jr. and Al Hartley, were talking about this very subject, and one of them mentioned uh, being a black artistic director in a white organization, and all the ramifications that go with that. I mean, you know, it's, uh, it looks great on the uh, on, on the brochure because, oh my God, now we're being multicultural. But how does that one person negotiate that kind of a power structure? And what kind of advances and changes and input will that person have?
1: Well, I, you know, I call it Obamaism <laughs> because... You know? You hire the black president, and now we're not a racist country anymore. It doesn't work if all the policies still maintain racism. Uh, and I live, I live with that. You know, I live with that paradox of of being a person of color running a white organization and seeing whiteness and how it how it um, comes out in in governance, in the board, in the budget, in operations, and in programming, and not really having the power to fix it without being called out for communication issues or um, using the race card and all those kinds of things. You know, it's just a very difficult position to be in. Um, It can't be fixed until it's all fixed. And you can't, you know, I think the metaphor I used in my article was that um, trying to fix racism by doing these small performative things, like hiring a black person to run your company, yeah. uh, is like is like painting over the mold that you found on your wall. That mold is still there, and it's going to come back in a few weeks. If they go in that wall and rip it all down, fix the the cause of the mold, the mold. Um, it's, it's yeah. a, it's a, it's a, it's a deeper problem to fix. And I, and I, sometimes people get overwhelming by how you fix it, but you just do it. You just start fixing it. Um, I, the last lately I've been telling people that, you know, in 50 to a hundred years when our grandchildren and great grandchildren are reading about the civil war of 2020, what side of yeah. history do you, what side of history do you want to be on? Yeah. When they open up the book and see your name and your organization, what side of history do you want to be on? Hopefully, the
0: kind, progressive, humanitarian side. And as you quote, Ibrahim X Kendi, because racism is racism is everywhere. Policies that aren't racist are inherently racist. You've got to change the whole organism.
1: You got to you the know, whole, whole organism. organism.
0: Hey, everybody. Thanks for tuning in to On Stage, Off Stage. I'm your host, George Sapio, and this is episode number 138, February 2021. And our guest is Michael J. Bobbitt, the Artistic Director of New Repertory Theater in Boston, Massachusetts. Michael is also an arts leader, a director, choreographer, playwright, and an anti-racist arts advocate. We have been discussing the nature and problems of inclusion and parody of boards in White Mountain Theater, the evolution of BIPOC voices in our arts, and the recognition and eradication of racist practices, both aggressive and passive, in the future of American theater. Yeah, whole organism needs to be refined. I mean, and yes, please, let's get Shakespeare out of the curriculum. Please,
1: thank you. Just, just. I, I don't so mind if he's a unit. I... Right, go ahead. I don't... I don't mind if he's a unit. Let's sure. Let's study him for a oh, week. Oh yeah, later, right? absolutely. Yeah. But he is like. But he is. There are whole pro MFA programs based on studying this man. I know. And there are, you know, Shakespeare one, Shakespeare level two. It's just pervasive. And I also believe that like the magnitude of some of his stories, and the beauty of his language, can be reflected in in rap music. Sure. In fact, maybe even some rap music is even more artistic than the work that he did because of because of the the experience in the in the twisting of language that these rappers use. Yeah. Um, teach these kids how to be artists, not not Shakespeare experts. Teach them how to think. Teach them how to not
0: swallow everything that comes along. Teach them that life is a series of simple and complex problems meant for you to enjoy as you walk through just Keep, keep them from accepting what they're told blindly, because that's where the death of, of the human spirit begins.
1: You know, right, I, correct. Yeah, I was, um, I, I've was. i been recently reflecting on uh, a lot of the teaching that I do, and I realized that, again, I learned everything I learned about theater in the late 1900s. Certainly, I've learned some more on the job, but really, the the formation of my ideas about what is good acting and what is good theater really came out of what I learned thirty years ago. Thirty years ago, um, and that, and when I, when I and even now when I teach, I find myself going back to to learning what I learned by my teacher in the, in the early 1990s. And I, and I, and I just go, how messed up is that? How are we not helping these kids? And so one of the things I do when I teach, I try to get, I do what you just said, which is to expand their mind to the creative process, to give them the tools to make choices, not make, not make them for them.
0: No, let them, you have to let them make their own. Otherwise, where's your future? What are these kids going to have?
1: Correct. They'll, they'll have a future that's still fifty years old. No. They'll have what we have right now, which is a future that is so afraid of digital theater and streaming, even though it did so great for the sporting industry. It put this. It put sports in people's living rooms in a visceral way, and it did not hurt what the, the attendance at the arenas and the venues where sports happen. It in fact elevated it. We have been so afraid of this digital market that we haven't even begun to explore the possibility of the creativity that can exist when film and TV, film and theater can be streamed into people's living rooms. Yeah. Um, I mean, we've only scratched the surface of that kind of creativity. And when we do go further, it's going to be brilliant and beautiful. And then maybe we can actually fix some of the equity issues that we have. Could be,
0: yeah. I mean, one of the th- one of the positive things about this pandemic, and yeah, sorry for that mixed-up phrase. I know it sounds heinous, but is that we've had to incorporate Zoom into our lives or or other programs, StreamYard, that sort of thing, which has done what I guess GarageBand or Pro Tools did for the music industry, because it put the actual tools for creativity in the hands of the general public, not just the people who could afford, you know, 24-track mixers or people who could afford dimmer systems for a 99-seat theater. Now, all of a sudden, anybody with a computer and Zoom and a text and some friends who want to make things happen can make their theater happen. They don't have to depend on the existing power structure to create, to think, to explore, to, to... Validate what's in their hearts and souls creatively. I think it's wonderful.
1: I mean, Zoom I is, do too. Right in the
0: butt, but you know,
1: I do too. And, and Zoom is just you know, it's Zoom is limited. And uh, yes. but but again, I think that you know, we're the most creative industry, especially theater. We're the most creative industry of all the arts industry because we integrate. Every single kind of art, it's it's visual art, it's auditory art, it's it's written art, it's it's performance, it's music, it's yeah. it's it's we, we and so the possibility of the things that we can do when we get out of our own way, the fact that we still have unions that are that are that are not allowing people to do digital work is is a little ridiculous um and it only serves to keep us stuck in the 1950s right. really the 1950s maybe the 1980s but the 1950s that way is where i think theater in this country still exists
0: yeah. well we're right back to what you said before which is fear of loss i mean change brings change you know all of a sudden you're not going to have what you had before you may have something different and that scares a lot of people you know once once you start empowering people you start taking things away from yourself how can you
1: do that yeah Yeah. it reminds me of those um warner brother cartoons the bugs bunny cartoons way back when when Mm. when i guess it was elmer fudd was working for a developer was the main contractor for a developer wanting to build these big skyscrapers and bugs bunny had a rabbit hole and they tried to, they, they, and so Bugs Bunny and Elmer Fudd would fight because Bugs Bunny didn't want development to happen, but Elmer Fudd was trying to do his job and moving towards the future. And then eventually you have this big development around this small little rabbit hole because Bugs Bunny refused to change. Are we the Bugs Bunny? Are we fighting change that will happen anyway? Mm. No. And there's a way for both to exist. There's a way for, mm. like, the way we used to see theater to continue to exist and allow other people to experience it. Oh, I don't think we have to lose
0: one to incorporate the second. I mean, yes, Zoom is is one thing and people on their computers and having readings without, you know, the the, the beneficence of of a major theater is a wonderful thing. But also, nothing can replace. That theater, nothing can replace right. that 99-seat house. That's what theater is. That's what it's been for 5,000 years, roughly. Um, yeah. It's people sitting in a room listening to somebody tell a story. That's at the very core he- of what of who we are
1: yeah and at the same time i think i mean look filming live theater and streaming it is not new it's been around since no. since, the, since the talkies started so sure. it's not something that people aren't used to they see it every year and we've done it we've done it we've filmed the tony awards we filmed the grammys we filmed the american music awards we film live stage and find beautiful ways to stream it into people's living rooms and i think we just have to embrace that and start incorporating that into our world you know i can imagine Permanently installing cameras so that you can have a couple of performances a week that you live stream. Yeah. I could see I can see local TV stations partnering with um, theaters to have like uh, either a streaming platform or, you know, there's so many ways. Even that the TV stations could could be making so much money off of this. And then I imagine like the fact that. You know, when I produce a show, I can get maybe five to ten thousand people to see that show. But when I, if I can stream it, that's another what hundred grand, that possibly hundred thousand people that can see it, and then the possibility of attracting more corporate sponsorship, like you see in the sporting industry. Uh, there, there's so many things that can, so many great things that can come out of this, um, this mm-hmm. if we if we embrace it, and go with it as opposed to fighting it.
0: I, I think it's an expansion of audience that is amazing because out of those extra hundred thousand people that you can now stream into your theater, you have the people who a can't really afford the seats in the first place. So you give them a discount for you know watching it on video, the people who are physically challenged that can't make it to the theater, yeah. okay? Um, the people who have to work the the second shift, you know yeah. that never get to yeah. go. You know, it's yeah. it's and I,
1: yeah. I, I, it's, <laughs> I heard someone say um, that they they didn't like the idea because, like, when they watch when they stream at home, they pause, they do other things. they they, they're not really focused and i'm like i don't care if they're absorbing theater i don't care you can sit on the toilet toilet and watch theater if you're absorbing theater that's good for the industry and you know as we are as we've seen that this this gig industry is a problem because all these artists that the the arts and culture industry has been hit the hardest with unemployment uh, more than like double what any other industry has been hit but if we embrace streaming and start making more money from it because we have embraced that we have explored all the creativity. Then we can put more money in artists' pockets. I don't know any artistic leader, I don't know any artistic leader that does not want to pay artists more.
0: Yeah, or pay them at all. I've done right. a lot of community theater where it was, "Hey, thanks very much. Uh, we'll see you again at next auditions." And people they go with it because this is their chance to be on stage. They, you know, it's. Every time I get paid for theater, I think I'm stealing something
1: yep yeah. yep yeah. yeah no it's, it's 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 the whole again the whole industry needs to be rethought yeah. and there are no there are no sacred cows in my mind, not a Good. one
0: um I got a couple of more issues, a couple of more questions that, that I'd like to run uh, past you, but one of them has been sticking with me. And that's transparency, and I don't want to go back to boards for a minute. Um, hope you're not bored with the board subject, but um transparency you you start, you wrote about instead of having essentially a locked room closed door kind of thing that you know then trickles down the information to the rest of the organization, you talked about incorporating the entire organization into the process of running the theater everything from you know the, the the quote board members themselves down to the techies or the actors you know uh, everybody else having input in the theater what's that like i mean i love that idea
1: well you're going to have more opinions helping you solve the problem to me solving problems is better when there're more people in the room to help you solve it buy in is better people feel agency when they have a voice yes. you know way back when in the, in the real estate development world the, the developer would go into a community and build a building and when that building was built the community was mad because they weren't included in the process so developers started including them in the process started having conversations with them about what they needed and what they wanted and so once that building was built then it was a win-win. The community used it, and the developers got a building that was capitalized. What we do in theaters, we have a small group of people that make most of the decisions. Yeah, who don't have the expertise in making the decisions, and they shut out the people who actually have advanced degrees and years of experience in that process. And so I don't, I don't get that whole structure, but. Um, Collaboration is one of my core values and I've always been a super collaborative person and it really has been a struggle for me to not be able to really include um, uh, the artists right. and the people that the people that actually carry out the mission into the decisions about what the what the company does. Um, and the people making the making the decisions, while there is some accountability, and a lot of stuff in my article can certainly be debated from a legal perspective, but conceptually, there's not all, there's not there's very little accountability to the people who are making the decisions. Oh yeah. If that the ends. budget, if the but if we don't if we don't make budget, the board members aren't really accountable for that. They say they are, but their lives are not actually going to change if they yeah. don't make budget.
0: Yeah, there's there's very little accountability when it comes to you know who did what and what's going to happen here and who's responsible for that. It's a it's a board. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. I I love the idea of incorporating everybody. Only f- if only for the simple point that you raises. We've got all these experts here who work in the theater, who've run this theater. <laughs> these are the people we should be speaking to first, at least in the technical and you know practical aspects of doing so. All right. They may not be experts in, in raising money from foundations, that's fine. But they are an integral part of making this thing work and
1: but they, they might should, be though. Yeah, they might I, be never I mean everyone knows that artistic directors are probably the best at sealing the deal when you have when you're looking at um, trying to uh, raise money from a from a donor, so why yeah. not bring an artist, Why not bring an artist in that conversation? Wouldn't the donor love to hear from the artist their perspective about why this show or why this project? Um, I mean, I, I I I think I think that that we go into these things. It's just I don't know. Again, I have no idea when this whole thing started going awry because I don't think the. The nonprofit mechanism was set up to be what it is today. I think it was just co-opted um, mm. to be what it is, co-opted by those who had privilege and wanted to have more privilege and power. Um, that 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 hoarding of privilege and power, uh, which I think is a sickness, can be, you know, I think it can be traced back to why nonprofits really struggle.
0: Yeah, yeah, nonprofits are the. Uh the hardest ones to <laughs> to manage well because they are a nonprofit and there's so many uh, I don't know legal things to keep them chained into a certain aspect of operation it's it's much more difficult.
1: Um, there are, there are, and there aren't. I mean, there's still a lot of flexibility. The IRS doesn't have a lot of rules that it that it um, puts onto nonprofits. But yeah. but nonprofit nonprofits are businesses. In fact, right. in many ways, nonprofits could could be more fiscally fruitful than for profits because, in addition to being able to make money, you can raise money, and you don't have to give it. You don't have to give it back. In for-profit, you have to give back your investments; those yeah. those people invested in you. So, there's there's a possibility that nonprofits can be can be very 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 um, sustainable. They could be.
0: yeah. Uh, running a business is a talent. It's a talent like being able to sing. It's a talent like being being able to to you know make nine out of ten free throws. It's a talent. Um, it's a talent. And you seem, yeah, and you seem to have this because I'm, I'm going to toot your horn like crazy here and expect you to talk about it. Um, <laughs> you, you seem to have this talent for business acumen, business success, and as the artist, I'm going to quote here, as the artistic director for Adventure Theatre, MTC, in Maryland, you led the company through a merger that increased the organizational budget by more than 600%, and led directly to an expansion of the audience base by over 400%. And in your first year at New Rep, which is where you are now, you eradicated their debt, built several months of reserve cash, increased ticket sales by 43%, donations by 24%, patronage by 26%, and the board giving exceeded their goals by 57%. How did you do this without witchcraft or bribery?
1: I did it with witchcraft and bribery. That's what I did. No, oh, God, write a book.
0: I want to read it, please. Because actually, you my, my your fundraising me. is. I I want to do a play. Give me money.
1: You know, yeah, well, <laughs> um, I mean, I, in many ways, I, I, I don't think it's luck. I, I definitely have worked very hard to develop the skills I've developed and I've had great mentors and I didn't do it in a vacuum. Again, my process of leadership is very collaborative. So it was the people that I worked with to help me get to those goals. Um, and I do have an ability to see what a lot of people can't see. Um so uh, some of it was, has to do with, you know, at, 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 at Adventure Theater, one of the first hires I made was to bring on full-time development people and marketing people, the people that can make money for the company. Yeah. If, if at the, 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 the risk is low. The risk is the cash flow risk on their cost per month. When you're hiring a development person, you're not writing them a whole $75,000 check the first day they come their salary is being doled out over the course of the year so at the very least they should be able to cover their own expense and so the risk is very very low similarly to marketing You know, I believe that um, I'm I'm a relationships person. And for me, that uh, uh, increasing donations and ticket sales is about building relationships and not increasing transactions. And so I get away from my desk as much as I can and I get out in the community to get to know people. And I am also share myself to the community so that when I'm walking in the door, people feel like they already know me because I've shared my life with them already. I also, you know, at New Rep in particular, we eh, both, I guess both companies, I would say if I had to qualify it, I spent 75% of my time trying to acquire new patrons and donors through relationship building and 25% on retention most organizations spend about 80 percent on retaining people they already have and not trying to acquire new people and then the last thing i will say and this is why i think diversity is good for business most of the growth of my patronage came from from diversity having diverse patrons and and diverse donors Uh, I don't believe that being a predominantly white institution is financially sustainable. I don't think that you'll be allowed to be a predominantly white institution unless you define yourself as a white affinity space. And we have those, which is fine. But just let us know that this space is for white people so we can stay away. Um, But if you aspire to be diverse, then do everything you can to do that, and you'll get there. So those numbers exist because uh, because of some of those principles and philosophies. Yeah. So.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's sorry. I just recoiled a little bit at, at at what you said. It just sounds like white people only, and I think we've had enough of that for
1: forever. Yeah, like right back in the day, if you had a complaint about something, you could send it to the customer service rep, and then they maybe they sent it up the ladder to the CEO. Yeah. But nowadays, if you don't like something, if you don't like the fact that this organization is doing this production and it's all white or having a panel and it's all white, you can send your complaint to everyone and then they can can forward your complaint to everyone. So white, predominantly white institutions are very vulnerable and those that are not building anti-racist diverse organizations will cease to exist in about 10 or 15 years.
0: Yeah, well, I do think that your sins come back to haunt you. So, yes, Um, I hope that's a positive aspect of the evolution of not only theater, but our species. I want to get on to the last thing I want to talk about right now. And this is a subject that is near and dear to my heart because I love the future. And one of the things I love about theater most is getting the kids in because their imaginations haven't yet been Contained, okay, or or uh, restricted by the, the the status quo. Theater for young audiences is some of the most incredible stuff you're going to see on stage. I mean, uh, some of, much of it lacks the complexity and production values of of mainstream theater, but it makes up for it and and surpasses those those efficiencies by the sheer volume of ideas and exuberance. And it's some of the most exciting stuff to see. And you work ex- extensively with young audiences, especially in gender representation and race representation. Can, can you talk about that for a little while? Because I'd, I'd love to hear about your work in that.
1: Yeah, I co-signed everything you just said. I think that theater for young audiences is is a model that adult theater should really look at because in Theater for Young audiences, you have less of a problem with diversify, diversity in audiences. You have less of a problem with this sort of stayed and controlled theatrical environments. Theater was never supposed to be stayed and controlled. It was always intended to be interactive. Yeah. Um, I, I think the level of innovation that happens in Theater for Young audiences, is, it's mind boggling and beautiful. And when it happens, when it when it moves into adult theater, adult theater gets the credit for it. But all that stuff came from theater for young audiences. The, some of the most creative ideas that we've seen on Broadway all came out of the children's theater world. Um, uh, and so I, I think it doesn't get. And then and to your point, like we have we've had so many like studies and surveys and 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 uh, research on like. If you can if you can get uh, get a, a human to to experience art before the age of eight they will they you have more of a likelihood of them being model citizens creative people lifelong patrons of the artists of the, of, of the arts or artists and so in my mind American theater needs to refocus and shift a lot of its attention on theater for young audiences. Theater for Young Audiences in this country is shut out of so many conversations about the whole American ecosystem, and it's sad, and I will tell you, as someone who has a foot still in Theater for Young Audiences, even though I'm not running it, I'm still writing plays and my best friends are all in Theater for Young Audiences, and in adult theater, I'm. What what is happening in TYA is remarkable. Even in the race equity world, it is remarkable. And I'm telling you, American theater, refocus your efforts on on cho- children's theater because it is brilliant. I think the last report I read about um, Broadway was that there was a third of the shows on, uh, the, the t- there were like nine shows on Broadway that were about, uh, that were theater for young audiences shows, making a mm. third of the income, making a third of the income on Broadway. Wow. And when we get back from COVID, I mean, I think, Broadway has a big problem because Broadway is such a tourist market. And I'm not sure how many many people are going to be traveling, but I tell you refocus on doing stuff for people that live in New York and for young audiences, and you might get back there faster. Um, Uh. But but the innovation that happens in theater young audiences is, in many ways, to me, the key to, like... It's so... The young audience adapts all the time. It changes all the time. It creates all the time. The number of commissions coming out of it, it it's just remarkable. Remarkable. So... Yeah.
0: I'd, I'd love to see that expanded. I'd love to see anything expanded that's that makes the audience think, that shows them new things, gives them new perspectives, and allows especially our, our kids and our, our younger members of society, to have the freedom and the confidence to be able to experiment with their thoughts and their dreams in an artistic way, because I think yep.
1: that's the one thing that will save the world. I hope, anyway. Right. I mean, we... I- at, at at Adventure Theater, we started we started hiring fifty percent people of color four or five years ago, and mm-hmm. I, and it was controversial. It was controversial at the time. I didn't really see anyone else doing it, and people were uh, obsessed. So I'm glad to see that it, this is now like a new trend that people are putting in their race equity reports. And I don't want to say that I pioneered that, but we certainly were doing it. Way back when, um, and I believe that without measurables, white will win, and so you have to put measurables in place. Yeah. but we we normalized seeing diversity on our stages. So a family of rabbits were were multicultural, and that was totally acceptable. I mean, because when the Asian child looks at the black dad and calls him dad, the relationship is clearly understood. Yeah understood, but in yes. but in adult theater, we were like that would never happen, and then Hamilton happened. It became a phenomenon, and it was like, yeah, it can happen. <laughs> it absolutely can. Um, yeah. But yeah. but I but I but I but we normalize what we want uh, the world to see. And the thing I the thing mm-hmm. I love about the the thing I love about the arts is that. And I really hope that Biden heeds this idea of creating a secretary of arts and culture just based on like the amount of money that arts and culture makes for this country. But I believe that most of the world's problems will be solved through creativity and that artists need to be in the room where all these decisions are being made. Because we have the unbelievable ability to see the world differently and we have the unbelievable skill set to bring this imaginative world that we see in our head to life. So we can help. We can help in all things. Yeah, we get a, can. Get, a, yeah. get a stage manager. Get a stage manager on this vaccine rollout. It'll be done. It'll be done like that.
0: Well, we're we're allowed, or we take the privilege of seeing the world against the status quo, against the way it's been run, against. In, in most senses, we react to what we see, and we posit new utopias, we, we seek redress for grievances and problems, and we imagine a positivity, even, even if the play is a tragedy. We are brought to that tragedy with the subconscious, subjective lesson of, yeah, but this could have been better. So I think most of the arts do... Project a positivity, a creativity for the future, and I think those those are the lessons that we need to keep promoting in order just to just to reach people we a, haven't reached before.
1: Yep, yeah, it's inherently a social justice um, yeah. art. Is I think inherently social social justice, and I also would say that we do probably uh, revere the past too much in theater and we need to refocus our efforts can't have classics can't have new classics if we don't commission people to write um and so 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 much of us so much of the time is spent on reviving stuff and not enough time is spent on new stuff and also i would say that as producers start thinking about when to come back to know that like I don't want to be re traumatized when I go to see the shows. You know, if I'm I, I wouldn't do a show about someone who's been sexually abused and then expect a whole audience of abused people to come see it. That's okay. what happens. That's what happens when marginalized people are put on stage. The whole story becomes about the thing that makes them marginalized, and then we don't want to see it. You know, I don't, I, I mean, I a lot of people do, but I just don't, I have a hard time seeing it. So I hope we can get to a place where we are celebrating the contributions of people of color into this culture and and do more of those stories.
0: I agree with you a thousand percent. Michael Bobbitt, this has been a wonderful conversation, and I want to thank you profusely for taking the time to come on in and talk to us. Um, I wish you the best best with everything in your future. I just from looking at what you've done so far, I, I know success is going to be hard won, but inevitable for you. Um, and thank you for the work that you've been doing.
1: Thank you so much George. It's really great to be on here and chat with you about the future of this industry that is in in dire straits. Uh, I have yeah. I have hope and I have hope and if I can be a part of making it come back and come back strong and more equitable uh, I, I will take on that charge.
0: I think with more folks like you hope is in, uh, success is inevitable so thanks. thank you. Hey, kids, thanks for listening to On Stage Offstage. On Stage Offstage is produced monthly, and all of our shows can be found at onstageoffstage.org and also on iTunes. If you enjoy what we do, please recommend us to your friends. Don't forget to like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at OnOffStage. And if you are a theater artist with an upcoming project of interest or work in a part of theater we haven't covered yet, or know of someone in the theater who would make really good chat? send us a note at info at onstageoffstage.org. Onstage Offstage believes in and advocates for a world where all people are free to live their lives as they wish, in peace and without fear. We believe in universal respect, diversity, and equality in all areas of life for all people, no matter what their nationality, race, religion, age, sexual status, or gender. Onstage Offstage will never promote or endorse those who seek to diminish others because of who they are. I'm George Sapio. Thank you once again for listening. And please, kids, stay safe. Be careful for yourself and for those with whom we share this rock. And as always, happy theatering to all of you.